1: Back to back this week, we sat through two three-hour movies.
3: That's right, over
1: three hours long. Monday night we saw Babylon, mm-hmm. and Tuesday night we saw Avatar. That's that's two over six very hours of movie films. Yeah, also
3: Babylon was stressful, but I think it had a reason to be stressful. It it worked. Avatar was like the opposite because it took its time on things and, you know, it was like, let's look at some beautiful things. And you were like, ah, I feel so chill. That's so (laughs) true. Two very different three hour experience. Yeah. Babylon
1: was like by by the 90 minute mark in Babylon, I was like scratching at my shoulder like I need a Xanax or something like I'm so hyper stimulated and stressed out. And then, yeah, Avatar, it was like I am at a, a meditative retreat in the Maldives, (laughs) on the water.
3: Which is not to say the action wasn't good. No, it was awesome. It was very exciting. It was great. But yeah, I think it was just having seen those back to back, I was like, my emotions are very different.
1: (laughs) Well, enough about the movies. We're going to go back to what was before movies, books.
3: Ooh, Yeah, remember those?
1: People used to just write stories down and tell them (laughs) to each other. Uh, We are back with a part three of Hans Christian Andersen. Who knew? Thanks again to Arvid for suggesting that we look into yeah. Hans and Charles Dickens. I mean, you knew this was going to spin out into a whole thing, but who knew it was going to spread out into so much? But we're um, going to close it out today, still not getting to everything in Hans Christian Anderson's life, but uh, hopefully hitting the biggest points that really kind of round out his character and give us, a, I don't know, some some sort of idea uh, as to who this guy was and what his whole deal was in the romance department. Yeah really nothing nobody like him that i can think that we've looked at so far i don't think
3: so yeah he's an interesting guy
1: i mean so far we talked about hans christian anderson and his challenging love life i mean he fell for men and women alike they were totally unattainable for him many of them and this guy also was an absolutely unhinged masturbator (laughs) he seemed to be afraid of actually having sex with anyone so he just went home and wrote plus signs in his diary Look, this guy maybe had some difficulties in understanding his own feelings, we've kind of concluded, and his feelings were usually very strong. Yes, guy was playful and imaginative and friendly, but underneath, he was also obsessive and lonely and confused. On one hand, you know, we could be grateful because this gave us some great literature. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it did drive a lot of people crazy. Mm. But there are so many stories about the people that Anderson loved in his own way We're never going to fit them all in. So today, we want to talk about a couple of his more passionate love affairs. We also are going to talk about some famous French authors who tried to get him laid. (laughs) And we're going to discuss how late in life he found himself at the most dangerously tempting place he could imagine, a Parisian brothel.
3: (gasps) Oh, la la. Uh-huh.
1: Uh, so, yeah, I say we jump right into this story because there's just so much to tell.
3: Let's go. Hey, there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or no romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. Uh-huh. A lover might be any type of person at all, an abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio.
1: Okay, y'all, before we get into the story today, first things first. We have made some egregious mistakes during our Hans Christian Andersen experience. So we have got to put ourselves in corrections corner.
3: You're such a loser.
1: Yes, we're both losers for this one.
3: <laughs> true. Uh,
1: Last time we said something about the Danish and the Dutch. I believe... <laughs> My exact quote was, I think Dutch is the language yes. <laughs> and Danish is the people and the pastry. Uh, yeah, yeah, Well, thank goodness that at Manvel Zink on Instagram commented, quote, um, Dutch is the language of the Dutch for sure, <laughs> but Danish is the language of the Danes. Whoops. Cannot believe you fell into that trap. Oh, well, you won't be the last. Thanks for a great podcast, as always.
3: (laughs) We really dutched that up. (laughs) (laughs) Also,
1: thank you, Manuel, for softening that by letting (laughs) us know it was a great podcast. She's like,
3: you still did a good (laughs) job. That was a very
1: dumb mistake. Uh, And Randy Jensen, who got us into this mess in the first place by (laughs) requesting that we do terrible uh, Danish accents, uh, she wrote... Quote, we speak Danish. I know because I'm a Danish teacher, but you said my name perfectly. Thank you so much. Yay. So also, Randy, thank you for softening that blow by letting us know we got (laughs) your name right at least. I
3: just said, you said Jensen and not Jensen. Right. Fine.
1: (laughs) We did find a great YouTube video about the Danish accent that helped a bit, but we still got a lot to learn.
3: I know. I was like, we need work. Okay. (laughs) I think we watched that video for like five minutes. Uh If, If we had some time. Yeah. Now, so we wanted to figure this out um, because Manuel is right. This is a common trap. And we walked right into it. And mm-hmm. well, we did a little digging and we found that for some reason there are a bunch of dummies out there just like us who get Denmark and the Netherlands confused. Mm-hmm. Or they, like, merge them together into some weird Scandinavian Frankenstein country <laughs> right. that does not exist. In fact, the Netherlands is not even part of Scandinavia, while Denmark is. Ah. ScandinaviaFacts.com dot com says, quote, with enough common threads, these two nations and their respective peoples are often tied together, whether they like it or not. Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they cite as part of the problem that the countries are kind of within proximity to each other, mm-hmm. although they're not adjacent. Mm-hmm. And they also say, well, both countries are also very flat and the people in both are happy and love bicycles. <laughs> so easy mistake <laughs> well, sure. to make, as you can see. I
1: mean. Happy people love bicycles. Basically, Those countries might as well all be the same.
3: Basically, twins.
1: Yeah, uh, that's embarrassing.
3: As soon as he said it, too, I was like, "What the?
1: fuck? <laughs> Why did I?" Of course,
3: say I know. And, you say Dutch. Why know, did I bring Dutch into this? In the edit,
1: could have caught it too. Didn't <laughs> you know we just do things so fast around here, and we're dum dums. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also found a woman named Kay Zander Melish who was a little more forgiving. She says on her blog, howtoliveindenmark.com, that quote. Confusing the Dutch and the Danes is understandable. They both represent small, peaceful countries with seafaring traditions. Countries which are today best known for healthy blonde people on bicycles, rushing home (laughs) to see their monarchs on TV and eat potato-based dishes. The Dutch are also known for their windmills, while the Danes are known for their wind turbines. It's an understandable mistake. (laughs) So thank you, Kay, for forgiving us on that one. Thanks, Manuel, and thank you, Randy, for helping us get educated.
3: I know. It's so at least Denmark we've learned a little geography today. We learned <laughs> a it's little bit cr- more about
1: a silly mistake. Denmark
3: I'm and the Netherlands. Very
1: nervous. That throughout the last two Hans Christian Andersen episodes, I referred to him as Dutch. I
3: know. I'm I like, very
1: well may have. OK,
3: well, let's just blanket statement. Hans yeah. was not Dutch. He was Dutch, Danish. In fact, from Denmark, not involved in this story right. at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure he we went there. We don't know why we drug them into this.
1: <laughs> all right. So today on the Hans Christian Andersen show that this has turned into, <laughs> um, we're going to talk about the time as a young man, he fell in love. With a woman named Riborg Vogt. Mm-hmm. And she was the sister of one of his classmates and the daughter of the richest man in town. This girl was extroverted and charming. And this good natured optimism is really what attracted Anderson to begin with. Uh, Jens writes in his biography that by traditional standards, she wasn't even that pretty, apparently. I don't know what the, the drive by on poor Riborg. What
3: value does but, she have?
1: <laughs> but she was great. Everybody loved her. Persona- all personality, right?
3: She's got a great personality, Hans. <laughs> I promise.
1: Well, Hans Christian Andersen wrote a letter to a friend of his, and he called her a, quote, witty, childish creature, which, as we know, Hans Christian Andersen is basically like him saying she's an absolute 10. But this girl also falls right into the same pattern as many of his other loves. When they met, she was already engaged to someone else. So surprise, Hans Christian Andersen fell for someone that he knew was unattainable, as we've said many times. Mm. He wrote her some weird letters, but. He didn't really seem to be trying to interrupt her wedding plans like he would later do with Edward Collins when he married Henriette, Mm -hmm, as we talked about in part one.
3: Now, Hans's biographer, Jens Andersen, says the first letter was, quote, duplicitous with contradictory proclamations of love and the exact opposite of a proposal. Just like, I don't want you to marry me. I just want to tell you nice things, I guess.
1: (laughs) I'd like to ask that you please not marry me. (laughs) (laughs) Would you not be my bride? Would you not make me the happiest man on earth, please?
3: She's like, yeah, no problem. I'm (laughs) actually engaged to this other guy, so that should not be an issue. Very easy. Then three months later, he wrote to her, quote, I will never be happy, but that's how it must be. And so forget me. Never give me a thought. You will be happy and there is nothing more that I wish. Live well. Only once more will I hear from you. Then never again. Do not feel sad for me, Reborg. God is good and merciful. Live well. Live well forever.
1: <laughs> you kind of imagine, she gets this letter that's just like, no, no, go on without <laughs> me. No, please. And she's like, okay, okay I, I was gonna.
3: That was my plan that's, all along.
1: Yeah, kind of. Also, there's a lot of exclamation week. points. So many exclamation points.
3: He didn't do the, the very 21st century thing of going back and putting a period yeah. at least once <laughs> so he didn't look crazy. Yeah, I
1: it go a little too hard.
3: He's just like, I feel it, so I'm writing it. Oh my
1: God, he felt it hard. Which
3: I respect, I guess.
1: (laughs) But look, Hans Christian Andersen was not just a lovelorn author who was confused about his sexuality. There's more to this guy. He was a lifelong traveler. He was a collector of stories. Remember, we heard in part one that him traveling across Europe is a big part of what inspired him to write the stories that he read. He was meeting other people. He was learning folklore. And that's really going to shine through in this episode, I think. It's so easy to focus on his misery, but it's only fair to point out that the guy did some really cool stuff, too. For example, uh, we all know Mount Vesuvius, the Italian volcano that buried Pompeii in 79 AD. Uh, great spot. Honeymoon alert.
3: Honeymoon uh, we alert. Climbed we climbed Mount there. Vesuvius. It was a very cloudy day. so
1: It's so cloudy. We're literally walking into the clouds and we get to the top. And I think, Diana, you turned to me and you were like, look at this gorgeous view <laughs> it
3: was nothing you couldn't see anything couldn't see and it was like your face. 20 degrees colder Ugh. as well like it was a nice hot day in italy but then we yep. were up there cold as hell
1: then uh
3: but it was kind of cool too because it was sort of thundery like yeah. it was gonna rain it did rain while we were up there but it kind of sounded like it was coming from the volcano yeah. like a little rumble from the volcano and then you yeah. had all this like fog But even our Mount Vesuvius pales in comparison to Hans's Mount Vesuvius experience. Seriously.
1: I mean, this guy and his buddies hiked this volcano in their 20s while it was erupting. Apparently, it was erupting kind of all the time back then. And so the locals turned it into sort of a tourist attraction. Mm -hmm. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, Pompeii erupting, but it was like always making little spurts and spewing smoke and lava. I mean, it would black out the sky. And I'm imagining if that was the case today, Like, the waiver you'd have to sign to go up there, right? Like, you may be buried forever in ash and lava. Sign (laughs) here. But it
3: ain't my problem. Yeah.
1: Hans wrote in his diary, quote, We were sinking up to our knees in ash. Coal black smoke swirled upwards, and then a ball of fire and gigantic glowing boulders rolled down onto the plain. There was no path at all. We had to crawl between huge pieces of lava. Wow. But showing off how tough he was, he wrote, quote, I sang loudly to show how little it was tiring me.
3: Oh, really defying the lava.
1: Right. I mean, this guy was an experienced junkie, clearly, right? I-, I can relate to that. He just wanted to go do stuff and see stuff and meet people. He often wrote about how frightened he was during his travels, but he wrote about his, quote, double nature, a fear of danger and the desire to try it. So... Despite facing, you know, many travels that were like a horrific, grueling voyage across Europe, he wrote in his diary once, quote, to turn around is utterly against my nature. I'm taking this route. I dread it and I submit to it. Absolutely.
3: Hmm. Which I think
1: is such a great affirmation for when you're traveling and it's scary, right? Oh, yeah. Like, y- you just got to do it. You've got to submit to that and go for it. Obviously, don't do something stupid, but like climbing an active volcano.
3: I, I wonder, because um, he talks about his double nature. I wonder if he had a very similar feeling about sex. Yes. Like he's like, I am a little afraid and grossed out by sex, but I also like I like to try things yeah. and I do want to see what it's like, but I just can't bring myself. Right. You know, like if he just ever if he kind of felt the same way about about his intimacy issues.
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely. I, I think that's going to come through a lot. In, uh, in seeing him sort of explore sex and how close he gets to it a few times. Mm.
3: Well, his travels, at least, were almost always worth the fear that he faced. Um, in 1843, Hans Andersen was hanging around Paris, Ooh. and he got to meet other authors like Honoré de Balzac, Ooh. Alexandre Dumas, and none other than our old buddy, Victor Hugo.
1: Hey, Victor, Who, how you been? We
3: know. Was busy. Oh, Getting yeah. busy. Getting busy. Hans! seemed to have an amazing time in Paris, which you got to be trying pretty hard to not have a good time in Paris. <laughs> Fair, I feel yep. like he wrote in one letter, "quote I thought it would be so difficult to gain admittance to Parisian salons, but nothing is easier."
1: I challenge that notion. You know, from probably a lot of other people who were trying to get into Parisian salons because, like, if you weren't the cream of the crop. You, you were, were still Hans author. Christian
3: Andersen. Right. right. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, by the
1: 1840s, he was a well-known author.
3: Right. <laughs> That'd be like Graham Norton or something. Being like, I thought it would be really hard to go to Jennifer Aniston's party, but it was the <laughs> easiest thing in the world to get an invitation. <laughs> yeah, you're freaking somebody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> see see what happens when I ask Jennifer yes. Aniston for an invite. An invite.
1: So far, yeah. she's always said no.
3: So far. Yeah. Been real, real bitch about it. <laughs> yeah. What are you
1: doing in my house? Who let you in here? <laughs>
3: How did you get this address? How
1: did you get the dress? How did you, you get past the dogs?
3: <laughs> dogs love me. What can I say? I
1: brought a steak, you know?
3: It's just I know. like the cartoons. It's... I've gotten my way past the dogs Yeah, before. obviously. Now, so he's in these salons, and Balzac invited Hans to sit down on this deep velvet sofa and then sat at Anderson's side. And it sounds like he was a real close talker, oh, so he's getting real in his face. I can imagine. And on Anderson's other side, Balzac invited, quote, a flirtatious courtesan who called herself a baroness and wore a cold black gown with jewels.
4: Ooh.
3: And a nothing happened at this party, of course. Partly because Anderson was terrible at speaking French. He's just not good at languages.
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: Balzac called his French, quote, original but incomprehensible. <laughs> and Anderson himself said, sometimes I talk my way into a standstill. But then I say, "Voila, c'est tout." And then I let the other person take the floor.
1: <laughs> I love that. I just I've exhausted all my French, so I'm just going to say, "Anyway, that's it. your turn to talk now. Go ahead.: <laughs> Now Anderson was also invited to hang out with Alexandre Dumas, of course, wrote uh, the three Musketeers. Count right: Can I Cristo? Yeah. Now, Anderson showed up at Dumas' Parisian home, and after knocking on his door, he kind of just stood there and waited for a while, and no one answered. Finally, a housemaid showed up, and she brought him up to Dumas' room. Hans described it as there being papers everywhere, just scattered all over the floor, and he had to tiptoe because he was afraid of stepping on the great Alexander Dumas' work, right? right? Now, Dumas was in there in the center of the room in a big pile of pillows, practically naked, and he's like writing furiously. And he only briefly looked up to say, I live like a regular garçon, but you'll have to take me as I am. And then he goes back to writing. And after quite a while of Hans Christian Andersen just standing there awkwardly, Dumas shouted, Viva! The third act is done! And he was kind of like a big guy, and he jumped up out of his pillow pile. He wrapped himself in a blanket like a toga, and he starts stomping over towards Anderson, who's, like, freaked out. He just nervously <laughs> backs away towards the door. And then Alexandra Dumas grabs him by the lapels and says, Isn't it grand and worthy of a racine? <laughs> to which Anderson is just like, Yeah, yeah, sure, man, whatever you say. I think it's great.
3: <laughs> Please stop molesting my coat. Hey, Put me down. What? What is this? They all write naked? Is that, I, was it, that, that just hey, a writing thing?
1: Maybe we should all be trying it, because these guys we- were... Prolific and oh, right. successful.
3: I'm like, I want to like travel back to my creative writing class and be like, <laughs> also, everybody, everyone wrote naked. Maybe that's the answer. Yeah. Now, a few days later, Dumas took Hans to one of his plays and he tried to set him up with the famed French actress Mademoiselle Rochelle. Future episode alert. By oh, my the God. Way. This woman. She's got quite the connection. Now, Anderson saw Rochelle perform four times. And he also got to visit her private quarters where he saw her, quote, receive a bevy of admiring men at the stroke of eight against the backdrop of a glowing hearth, red velvet draperies and a red carpet. I mean, he must have clearly he was clearly in the corner like, "Uh." (laughs) So glad to be here. Hi, Hans. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to write about these red velvet draperies while you guys...
1: Yeah. Ignore the boobies oh, and all the men ooh. groping them.
3: Everyone's naked. Um, uh-huh. Okay. Uh, glowing hearth. What else? What can we talk about? <laughs> yeah.
1: He's like, I'm going to save this visual for later when I'm at home oh, plus yeah. blessing in my diary.
3: <laughs> this is for me privately. <laughs> now, Dumas also dragged Hans into the green room after a ballet show. And then the two of them were suddenly surrounded by scantily clad ballerinas. Uh-huh. So, of course, Hans got really uncomfortable, and he tried to dip and squeeze his way through the crowd. Uh-huh. But Dumas grabbed him by the arm, pulls him back into the group of dancers, and said, quote, No shirking, my good friend. Come over here and be pleasant to the ladies. <laughs> oh what? Hans is like, my worst nightmare, being pleasant to the ladies. <laughs> <What>? <laughs>
1: Also, why, why do these experiences get wasted on Hans Christian Andersen? I know. You know, Eli, I never get there. brought back to the green room after a ballet show. I mean, not in a few years anyway. Not since I was that's doing pres- more theater.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah, you've uh, been around
3: some scantily clad dancers before yeah. in your life, I'm sure.
1: And I probably did the same thing. I was probably like, I'm, a guy, I'm just going to go.
3: Yeah. <laughs> I'm respectful.
1: Or I'm uncomfortable and in, and not confident.
3: Yeah, well, that's fair.
1: <laughs> Which can be often mistaken for respectful. It's worked out great for me. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, this, this whole time, I haven't been respecting you. I've just been afraid to be an asshole.
3: <laughs> well, keep that fear going and we we'll yeah, all right. right. <laughs> all
1: right. Well, Victor Hugo was a much more pleasant visit for Anderson. He first met him in 1833 when Victor Hugo invited Hans Christian Anderson over to his place. And Anderson wrote in his biography, The Fairy Tale of My Life, that Victor only wore, quote, his dressing gown and elegant house slippers.
3: Well, we we know he's a busy man getting laid four or five times a day. What's the point of getting dressed? (laughs) And He was riding
1: naked. So he probably came by and Anderson knocks on the door and he's like, oh, shit, hang on. Let me put on a robe at least. (laughs) That's all you get. Well, a decade later, in 1843, during this trip, he met with Victor again. And Anderson said he was still in his slippers and dressing gown. Of course. And he invited Hans to stay for dinner. Victor was lovely. He was kind. He was very sweet to Hans Christian Andersen. And he gave him some advice in the form of a little poem that he wrote in Andersen's scrapbook. Kind of like a yearbook signature. Have a great summer. See you next summer. So (laughs) let's go down to Poetry Corner and hear Victor Hugo's poem to Hans Christian Andersen.
3: Happy is the one who loves and who in the black of night while he seeks faith can find love. He has at least a lantern while he awaits the day. Blessed is his heart. To love, that is half a faith.
1: That's nice. Mm-hmm.
3: I love these French guys are like, I don't get it, man. You're right. telling me, you're telling me, you're in Paris and you don't want to get laid? <laughs> like, these women are ready for you, sir. Right.
1: He's like, while you seek faith, uh, you know, you can be worried about your faith and stuff like that. And also in the middle of it, uh, go ahead and be getting and laid, and get, you know? Get some. It's like a lantern that lights your way in the <laughs> darkness.
3: It's half a faith.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Love is half a faith, so you've got to experience it, right?
3: So if you have two, you have a full faith. Victor Hugo's <laughs> like, you wouldn't believe how much faith I got.
1: <laughs> well, this time, the early 1840s were the most romantically intense period of Hans Christian Andersen's life. His tour of Parisian horn dogs was only shortly after the opera singer Jenny Lind had made clear to him that he was like a brother to her Mm -hmm. you remember from part one and around this same time early 1840s he had two passionate pseudo love affairs that actually might have almost turned into something Mm -hmm. and we're gonna hear about those right after this Play for free at
0: LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Boyd were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry. Every rematch. Every rookie debut. Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL Plus. Visit NFL.com slash schedule release to learn more.
2: Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger i'll offer expert tips that are doable and i'll keep it short so let's do this class is in session find try this from the washington post wherever you listen i'm katia adler host of the global story over the last 25 years i've covered conflicts in the middle east political and economic crises in europe drug cartels in mexico
1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign
2: up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VTW group prohibited by law. See terms and conditions
0: 18 plus. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release. Presented by Verizon. Coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
4: I bet you're smart.
1: Yeah, and you like to hold your own in the group chat. We can help you drop even more knowledge. My name is Martine Powers. And
0: I'm Elahe Azadi. We host a daily news podcast called Post Reports. Every weekday afternoon, Post Reports takes you inside an important and interesting story with the kind of
1: reporting that you can only get from The Washington Post. You can listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. Go find it now and hit follow.
3: Welcome back to the show.
1: Oh, beautiful. How
3: is that? You're really good. Welcome back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the show. show. Remember, very flat. welcome?
3: Welcome back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the show. That's great. I think we're getting somewhere. (laughs) We can finally go to the Netherlands, and they'll be like, oh, are you from Denmark? (laughs) (laughs) So in 1843, Hans Andersen was feeling restless. His writing was switching back and forth between these tragic poems and these pious children's fairy tales. But in November of that year, he bumped into an old acquaintance at a party whom he had met once before, like years earlier. And this was a law student named Henrik Stamp. After the party, Anderson wrote in his calendar, quote, Henrik exceedingly lovable. Hmm. And after that, they started to exchange a lot of letters. And it almost looks like Hans might have really fallen for someone who actually loved him back, maybe?
3: Early in 1844, Hans wrote Henrik a letter that said, My darling Henrik, writing to you seems a little odd, seeing as I could just as well be with you speak with you and shake your hand whenever i wish however it is easier at least for me to express myself in writing sure which we know that about hans yeah <laughs> yeah for sure i
1: mean think about jenny lind or he could barely speak to her but he like wrote her a marriage proposal in a letter
3: yeah right exactly yeah. which makes sense i feel like right i mean you want to choose your words very carefully and he always felt so uncomfortable
1: yeah he was Gen Z. He was like, I don't like a phone call.
3: That's right. I don't, I don't want to be asked <laughs> questions
1: unprepared. Text only.
3: Right. Hans goes on to apologize for being curt with Henrik the night before because he wasn't feeling well. And he ends the letter, quote, you, the person I often believe that I would give up my life for. Talk to me, you often say. Yes, that is what I wish to do. But I, lonely as always, must do this evening. Henrik wrote back that never before in his life had he, quote, opened my whole undivided heart to anyone as I have to you. And he asks Hans once, quote, to have absolute faith in me and always take my part. Now, it's come up in our show before that, you know, affectionate letters between men, especially in this time period, can be really easily misconstrued by today's standards. Right. Um, Men would use very flowery language, writing, expressing their love for each other. Women, too, honestly. That was very passionate. And it is it was very romantic in a way, even if the relationship was totally platonic and not physical in any way. They'd be
1: like, you you know, some two Parisian guys write to each other. Oh, you are my best friend in the whole world. You're so important to me. I love you more than anyone I've ever loved. I want to put my head between your legs. And everyone's like, yeah, they're friends.
3: They were really, really friend. good friends. <laughs> like,
1: uh, I no. mean, but
3: there really, there really weren't people who wrote like that and didn't mean anything like that. Yeah,
1: so, not you know. like that. Quite, no, I don't. But think, very, very but much. I love you. You're you're the or most like beautiful I have man. The, your
3: kiss on my lips. Yes. I think of it every day or yes. something. But it's like it's not about that. You know, right. it's just like. And then it's it kind of makes me sad a little, like I wish that men today felt like they had the permission to be that intimate with one another, right. obviously, we have a, a loneliness problem in at least American men, yeah, that I think you know it's just too bad that you couldn't write that now without someone thinking, oh you want you want me to jump in them pants
1: man, if somebody ever wrote to me in a letter that they want my kiss on their lips, oh, I'd punch them oh, in the how face
3: dare you. Oh, no way, man. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that is that is a common. And very easy trap to fall into, I think, when you're looking at historic relationships and you're trying to find like that hidden, like, oh, is there real feelings here, you know, of romance or not. So that might be confusing to us today. But it also might have been just as confusing for our friend, poor Hans Christian Andersen, because he seemed to have a real problem with how he and Henrik felt for each other over time. And, you know, we know he had this problem with Edwards letters, too.
1: Yeah. Now, Hans's calendar really kind of paints a picture here for us, and it's cited in Jens Andersen's biography. In December of 1843, Hans makes small notes like, Henrik lovable or H trusting. Sweet little notes. Mm -hmm. And then just after Christmas, he wrote in his calendar, letter from my beloved Henrik. A few days later, spoke sensibly with H, who promised me everything. And then in late January, he wrote, every day at Henrik's. And then on March 11th, he wrote, Henrik was here tonight, loving and kind. Then a week later, March 18th, he wrote, Henrik suffering from jealousy. Oh. Then six weeks pass. And on April 30th, Henrik indifferent to me. Then May 2nd, have not seen Henrik for two days. That's not kind of him. Then May 6th, went to see him. He was not as he was before. Is love over? And on May 23rd, departed at seven in the evening, Henrik saw me out.
3: And during all this, Jens writes, Hans's February diary is loaded with little plus signs, more than usual. Mm. And in March and April, Hans started getting a type of eczema and rash, which the biographer calls psychosomatic. Right. So kind but, of self-inflicted Yeah, he, brought he was it on feeling himself. stressed out, I yeah. guess. Hans wrote in his diary things like, Penis tender. Penis sick. And penis very bad. Oh no. <laughs> Which I guess means it hurts. I thought when I originally saw that, I was like, hey, my penis really acted up very today. <laughs> I'm <slap>. misbehaving. <laughs> now Hans knew that he just had to get away from Henrik. His dick could not handle it anymore. Right. So he took his wiener to get some schnitzel and spent the whole long, beautiful summer in Germany. And this is where he met the hereditary Grand Duke of Weimar, Karl Alexander von Sachs Weimar Eisenach.
1: Amazing name. (laughs) So long. (laughs) Now, Anderson and the Grand Duke had another deep and intense emotional relationship. But maybe finally this one was actually just more than just a platonic couple of bros who spoke in misleading ways to each other. Mm. Because Anderson once wrote, Quote, the hereditary Grand Duke walked arm in arm with me across the courtyard of the castle to my room, kissed me lovingly, asked me always to love him, though he was just an ordinary person, asked me to stay with him for this winter, fell asleep with the melancholy, happy feeling that I was the guest of this strange prince at his castle and loved by him. It is like a fairy tale. Aww. But, like... Was it maybe a fairy tale? Oh. You know, he wrote this in his diary, but a lot of scholars don't really trust a lot of Anderson's own accounts of his life. Like his autobiography is literally called the fairy tale of my life. <laughs> okay. So is he dressing this up? Is he creating this prince? Like You know, his biographer writes that he makes himself sound like one of the princesses from his fairy tales. Mm-hmm. That this, you know, this prince, this duke came in and just swept him off his feet and carried him away and kissed him and said, stay with me for the winter. Mm, They were close, but yeah, but you'd kind of want to take it with a grain of salt.
3: I see. But they did exchange loving letters often. Mm -hmm. Now this was a tough point in history for them as well, because revolutions were breaking out in Germany in the late 1840s and war was brewing between Germany and Denmark. They worked hard to remain friends, and the Grand Duke even wrote to Hans Christian Andersen and sort of posed the question, quote, did we love each other because of our political ideas? But he kind of answers himself and says, quote, no, truly not. But because of the sympathy of our souls, of our hearts, our imagination, it was these things which attracted us to each other, which bound us together, and God willing will also keep us together in the future promise me that the opinions and views of the present shall never never influence our friendship
1: which is a, a sweet thing to say but also like well you're the you're the grand duke you know right. like you're basically saying promise me that your opinions and views of the politics i'm directly involved with aren't yeah. ever going to bother you
3: a little different than like a regular citizen of Germany right. being like, I mean, whatever happens between our countries, I hope we can stay friends. Yeah. The, you're like, you have some power in this yeah, situation right? right. <laughs> about what happens between these countries. So it's a little harder to separate you yeah. from those politics.
1: And Anderson was really heartbroken by this conflict. I mean, he was really happy to hear Carl say this to him in this letter, but he also couldn't help pointing out some of the terrible things that were going on with this war. Like sure. German newspapers, for example, were saying patently untrue things about Denmark and the Danes. Mm. And so when Anderson wrote about these things in his letters, Carl just wouldn't respond to them in his replies, just didn't bring it up. And when the Grand Duke got directly involved with the war by commanding troops in this disputed territory between the two nations, Anderson was really hurt by this. He was kind of shocked that he got so directly involved. Hans wrote back to his old buddy, Edward Collins, remember him from part one, and he said he'd received a letter from the Grand Duke saying, hey, buddy, I'm really sorry I haven't heard from you in months. Anderson's like, well, but you've been off fighting this war. I haven't heard from you. Mm. Anderson wrote that Carl said he, quote, had thought politics would have nothing to do with our friendship, and I would be very sorry if I'd been deceived in you. What? Yeah, the Grand Duke here is saying wow, you know, you're so upset about this war, but I thought we promised that we wouldn't let politics get in our way. I guess I was mistaken about you. Ah, Which is such a twisted thing to say. Like, oh, gee, I thought you didn't care about that stuff, but maybe I was wrong about you. Like, that's so fucked up for him to treat Hans like that.
3: Right, and again, because it's like, well, you have some say on this. Like I'm writing to my friend who yeah. could actually do something <laughs> about this horrible propaganda against Denmark. Right. But you're not. And then you're telling me to just like shove it, like <laughs> shove it somewhere so yeah. we can still be friends and you have no consequences for yes. your actions. Like, yes. that's not really very fair.
1: Yeah. And the, wow. I, you, you you lied really to changed.
3: me. Yeah. <laughs> when I'm
1: the one who said promise me. That, you know, Mm this will never come between us.
3: Yeah, he just wanted permission to do whatever he he wanted to do. Yes. And and not have to, again, not suffer any consequences. Right. So unsurprisingly, their relationship kind of fell apart after that. And the letters eventually stopped in 1862 when a second war broke out. Anderson did not hear from Carl Alexander again until 1874 when Carl heard that Anderson was dying and decided to try to reconnect. So it really took a long time for this wound to heal. But back in 1866, just a few years after the Second War broke out with Germany, Anderson took another trip through Western Europe because he felt unsafe and uneasy at home. So he decided to visit some friends in Spain. But on his way home, he stopped back in Paris, And he ended up in the last place you'd expect him, a brothel. Oh, my. And we will hear about that little trip right after this little trip to the commercials. (laughs) Welcome back to the show.
1: So the famed authors in Paris weren't the only ones that were trying to get Hans Christian Andersen laid. Because during a three-month trip to Portugal in 1866, he visited a friend named Jose O'Neill in Sintra. Now, Sintra was made famous as a romantic pilgrimage destination after Lord Byron himself passed through in the 18th century. At the time, Byron had been staying in Lisbon, but he basically got chased out by the husbands of a few women that he was sleeping with. <laughs> so he was on the run and he fled to Sintra. And he just ended up falling in love with this city, and he called it Glorious Eden in one of his poems. Mm. And this just set off like a whole tourism campaign for Sintra. Sure. So shortly after Hans Christian Andersen arrived, some hundred years later, Jose, his host, told him, quote, I suppose you'll also want to screw and make the acquaintance of young people who screw everybody.
3: Oh my goodness.
1: It's like that. So you're here, I'm imagining oh. you're gonna want to go have sex with the locals. That's uh, what people do what? when they're in Sintra. <laughs> and Jose just kept pestering Anderson to quote, fulfill his obligations as a modern tourist and, you know, go get busy.
3: You don't understand. We have an entire economy around this. Right, yes. How dare you not take part? <laughs> but Anderson said he quote, had not wished to gallivant around like an Englishman. <laughs> Instead, every day he took a long hike up a steep road to Palácio de Pina, which is Sintra's main landmark. This was a beautiful fairy tale style castle painted in bright primary colors. So you could you could see why Hans is interested.
1: I'm interested. I'm interested. Let's we're go all right interested. It's beautiful. It's, it's, it, it looks gorgeous.
3: I, like we immediately started planning a trip to Portugal and yes. Spain. <laughs> if you're in Sintra,
1: give us a holler. We will come stay on your couch. Yes, we, we might we will. have to work while we're there. <laughs>
3: Now, every day, Jose bugged him, like, mm, Hey, shouldn't you be uh, doing something else while you're here? <laughs> Someone else, right. you know? Which I don't know if our Sintra hosts will say the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and Jose asked Hans, Well, what are you going to say back home in Denmark when people ask you whether you saw anything in Sintra besides this palace? To which Anderson replied, quote, I'll say no. <laughs> <laughs> Which I like. In Denmark, we say what we mean. Yes. But he loved Sintra. He stayed as long as he could, particularly because he was worried about this second war with Germany back home. Oh,
1: nobody likes a second war with Germany. <laughs> it's never. It's never good. The first war with Germany is always bad <laughs> enough. The second, I know, like we got to do is, this again. A big problem. So we've talked a lot about how Hans Christian Andersen is not only seemingly kind of terrified of sex, but it sounds like he's outright disgusted by it. Whether this is religious or personal or what his deal is, we're not really sure. Mm -hmm. But he still seems really fascinated by it. And at times, it feels like he's considering sex, like in the same way that somebody might stand on the edge of a cliff and peer over the precipice, like daring yourself to plunge into eternity, right? Remember, we mentioned earlier, Hans himself wrote about his, quote, double nature, fear of danger and the desire to try it
3: okay right there right Mm -hmm.
1: and so maybe sex was part of that I I have this I want to try it but it's scary to me I don't want to try it so I just want to get close to it and then back away
3: I wonder too if he's like seeing all these people dedicate a lot of their time and energy to having sex or finding sex or paying for it or whatever and he's like if I do it once do you just like go off a deep end where yeah. all you care about? Yeah. Or like maybe he was a little concerned about the effect it has on you to have done it.
1: It could be. Or I'm thinking about people like Tesla. And we've heard of other oh, people, yeah. especially in the more modern tech world. Not like today. I don't know. Maybe today. But, but some of the inventors we've heard of in the past really, yeah. who, who legitimately thought like, oh, sex and romance just gets in the way of my, my genius mm-hmm. and my ingenuity. Right. And I need to stay away from that. Otherwise, I, I won't put out the things I do. And I mean, I don't know. Maybe they're right. Maybe they if they had fallen in love and had a bunch of sex, they would have not done the things they did. Um, yeah. But...
3: Maybe Hugo is the exception that proves the rule.
1: <laughs> right. He's
3: like, I still got a lot done. I don't know what y'all are
1: doing. <laughs> it's called multitasking. <laughs> so this sort of fear of sex and wanting to get close, but not too close to it, might be why, in 1866, on his way home from Portugal, Hans Christian Andersen stopped for a brief 24-hour visit in Paris. And he really challenged himself there. Because he himself once called Paris, quote, the most lustful city under the sun, in a letter. And he had even more fun things to say in a poem that he wrote. So let's go down to Poetry Corner and hear Hans Christian Andersen's take on Paris.
3: Rushing, shifting, fatiguing, jumble, all around me. I am in Paris. Every day here is like a carnival day, a travesty of a new paradise. Whitewashed graves with painted roses. Human souls and swaying reeds dance around me, smiling, luring, testify. The moment, that is life. The fig leaf is gone along with all that is ordinary in humankind. I am thinking of Babylon. Eden's tree of knowledge now grows in Babylon.
1: Wow. Sin City. Mm-hmm. I feel like in talking about Babylon and Eden's tree of knowledge, he's like, this is a this is a city of intellectualism, right? This yeah. is a city of culture and art. And also, you know, knowledge is a sin, right? Mm-hmm. So there's all this kind of sin creeping in around it. Interesting. Um, yeah, I wonder.
3: I always find that so strange. To consider knowledge a sin, but that, I guess, is the story of the Garden of Eden, right? Right. So, interesting.
1: Sometimes I'm like, no, they're right. We'd Mm. be better off if we were dumb.
3: I mean, ignorance is bliss.
1: Yeah. So, while Hans was in town in Paris, he took a brief meeting with his old buddy, Alexandre Dumas, and his daughter, and then he went to dinner by himself and had a few glasses of wine.
3: The vino gave him the courage that O'Neill, Balzac, and Dumas could not. And Anderson decided to go to the last place you'd expect him to visit, a Parisian brothel. Oh, my. Now he wrote about this in his diary on August 30th, 1866, saying, quote, During this whole trip, I've been urged to pay a visit to a prostitute. No matter how tired I was, I decided to see one of these kind. I went to a house. A woman came who sold human flesh. Four prostitutes appeared for me. The youngest was 18. I told her to stay. She was wearing hardly anything more than a shift, and I felt so sorry for her. I paid her five francs, but didn't do anything. Just looked at that poor child who uncovered herself completely and seemed astonished that I merely looked at her. Huh. Phew, sold human flesh. He's really <laughs> bringing it, breaking it down to bare I'm bones like, is here. Is that a
1: translation thing, or is that just how he put it? I, I mean, I think that's how he felt about it, could right?
3: Also be his literary he is such a literal guy yeah like both in terms of being a literary person but also like he took things as he saw them kind of right. so i think he was like L- that's what's happening
1: but how weird that he just went in paid this girl and just was like i'm just gonna sit here and you can kind of take your clothes off if you want but we're not gonna do anything but they talked well and they how funny that how
3: astonished she was that yeah. he's going to pay her to just stand there. Well, God, like, imagine. Clearly, that was not a yeah. common thing. No,
1: imagine the Victor Hugos that are usually coming in there. <laughs> okay. She's like... She's like, oh, God. The last
3: guy exhausted me. Ooh, I
1: need some stamina. <laughs> you just want to talk? My God, okay. This About
3: good. what?
1: <laughs> well, after this, Anderson headed home, but there was something different now. It was the closest that he had ever, you know, physically been to having sex with someone. He wrote in his diary, quote, many Parisian thoughts. It's good that I'm leaving at once. The flesh is weak.
3: Parisian thoughts. That's what I'm going to call it next time I get all hot and bothered. <laughs> I'm <laughs> like, having
1: Parisian I'm thoughts. having
3: Parisian oh thoughts, my. babe. Get in here.
1: Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that's kind of, I mean, again, you see him on the precipice here, of this yeah. fearful thing. The flesh is weak. I'm so glad that I'm leaving right away. Mm. Uh, or God, something might happen, which is exactly what I don't want to happen. Yeah, But, the next year, in 1867, he returned. Officially, he was in town to see the World's Fair, which was called for by Napoleon III, our friend, uh, and he was marking the beginning of the Second French Empire. But, as the biographer Jens says, unofficially, he was going to test himself further, and maybe try and uh, dip more than a toe into the murky waters of his uh, uh, Parisian thoughts,
3: Ooh. so to say.
1: <laughs> And over a 12-month period, Anderson went to Paris three more times, and in those he visited four brothels.
3: So, did he go through with it? Well, he wrote in his diary in May of 1867, quote, After dinner, I walked up and down in concupiscence, then suddenly went into a human shop. One woman was plastered with powder, the second, ordinary, the third, quite a lady. I spoke to her, paid her twelve francs, and left without having sinned indeed, but certainly in my thoughts. She asked me to come back, said I was very innocent for a gentleman. I was so relieved and happy when I exited from that house.
1: Man. Same thing again, just like, oh thank god I got out of there. When I did, I almost had sex nice, with that woman.
3: I know. And human shop!
1: Human shop.
3: I'm saying like, damn, bro, get a little flowery with it. (laughs) I thought you were a writer.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's a little judgy, too. He's like, first woman was plastered in powder. The second Mm -hmm. was ordinary. But the third was quite a lady.
3: I know. And it's like that he wanted her because she was a lady. So she was a little better. Mm, Maybe so. And then the younger, the 18-year-old, he felt that she was maybe more innocent or something. Like He definitely got his own ideas about what these women are like in their private lives. See, all of his visits were basically like this. He would slip into one of these human shops, pay for time with a woman, talk to her, and then leave. And that was it. And each time they were all surprised and delighted by his kindness, they all tried to get him into it. But he always just ran home to his diary and marked a plus sign.
1: He wrote, quote, Many would call me a coward. Is that what I am? Jens writes that, Maybe this wasn't just about challenging himself and putting his chastity to the test, because he wrote about the women that he spoke to in these brothels and all the details that they gave him about their lives. And remember, we talked about this. Anderson loved traveling and meeting people and hearing their stories, hearing local folktales, hearing just like what someone was like in their day-to-day life, and he often incorporated that into his own stories. Jens references a fairy tale that Anderson wrote called Auntie Toothache and this story has a boy in it who has a real talent for writing poetry but he is discouraged from doing so so we remember that about his Mm -hmm. early life and the boy goes through garbage bins to collect little scraps of paper that people have written on and thrown out and the boy starts piecing their lives together and discovers all these random intricate human experiences and he gets this picture of a very diverse and fascinating world. Jens writes, quote, we should understand Hans Christian Andersen as a traveler. His prayer to the world was allow me to develop freely in accordance with my own nature and take me as I am. That's so beautiful because that's
3: everyone's prayer to the world. I mean, And a lot of
1: it. Yeah. Or he's just like, look, I'm I'm just me. I know I don't do things the same way as you do. Take it or leave it. I just I want us to get along. I want us to be friendly with each other. I want us to love each other. Maybe it's hard to love me, but I'm just trying to collect as much as I can in this world Mm -hmm. while I'm here. Right. And maybe that, like we said, maybe that turned him away from sex a little bit because he's like, why am I going to waste my time with that when I could be out doing all these like other passionate, intimate things with a whole wide array of people?
3: And maybe he thought it even ruined your objectivity about a person.
1: Oh, yeah, maybe so.
3: So I don't know. He was just an interesting guy. He really I can't decide if he would have like as an asexual person today or not, because it seems like he really felt a lot of sexual energy. He wanted that kind of release. He just couldn't allow himself to do it for whatever reasons, whether it was religious or physical or. Or whatever,
1: I think that's honest to me, that's the most important thing to take out of this story, because I think that he Really lacked the language and the and the community to describe or explore or understand his sexuality, right? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, things were so much more rigid back then in terms of what people thought of sex, and, and in some ways they were less rigid too. Because like you go to Paris and everybody was I mean, doing whatever. I mean, he described Paris as Adam without his fig leaf. He was like, "There's <laughs> just dicks wagging around everywhere you go," um, but. But, you know, but it does sort of speak to that sort of how much rigidity around sexuality has evolved since then to now mm-hmm. in terms of some of the more open conversations we're having about how, like, I, I don't fit in a box. Right. And a lot of people still don't fit in a box. And that's why I think this that's an important part of this story is that this isn't new. This isn't because, you know, uh, Twitter came around and people are pushing agendas and and trying to I don't know what people think people are trying to do in terms of breaking open sexuality into a larger conversation, but there's always been a lot of people who don't fit the traditional mold of their sexuality or how they want to experience sex or intimacy or romance. This is not new. This has always been the case. And there's been people like Elagabalus and Hans Christian Andersen uh, all through history who just like, sure, maybe most people are totally comfortable with the traditional way that we've always done it. But there's nothing wrong with or weird about people who want to experience that differently.
3: No, I I would say the only problem with the way we talk about it today is that we're so desperate for people to label themselves one or the other. Yeah. um, Of anything. Yeah. I I mean, and. You know, you can see it being a little frustrating when you're like, OK, so are you buy or pan or what's the difference? Like, why yeah. do I have to learn all these things? And there's a million flags. You know, sure, <laughs> I, sure. I mean, I can see why people get a little like, all right, what's going yeah. on? But it's almost like, you know, it's the it's sort of the other side of that coin where it's like Anderson couldn't explore because there wasn't any conversation. Yeah. And now it's like you're exploring so much, but there's still this desire to really be able to place you into some neat little category. Yeah so that i can understand you and conceptualize your life for whatever right, reason right. that i need to do that and not not even a malicious thing just like trying to understand another person yeah but it's like you know the thing about a spectrum is that it's weird and there's blurry parts and yeah. i think sexuality is a spectrum and things blur together and there's so much that goes into a desire for sex and who you want to have sex with and why and when <laughs> and where <laughs> you know what i mean like it's uh, and it's very different for each person, I think it's one of those things that you could probably make a million, million, billion different categories, and you could still find someone who doesn't fit into a single yeah, one of them.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's sort of what we're learning. The conversation is messy. I yeah. mean, I see people within one sort of umbrella category of sexuality or gender, and they're fighting with each other about, of course, you know how how that breaks down. Right, and I think for anyone to get angry about that uh is silly because it is messy and there aren't a lot of clean answers and we're go- and 20 years from now people are going to think differently about it than they do today mm-hmm. um hopefully in more open and interesting ways and less judgmental but but you're right i mean it's it's still messy mm-hmm. um and it's good that it's just being talked about i mean we are living in a conversation and it is wacky mm-hmm. and you know you could just sit back and watch it happen and that's fine yeah, yeah. Most of you, most of us don't need to be involved in that conversation. <laughs> Very you know? true. I'm just like, tell me what I got to say. Out. Yeah, sometimes I'm like, what? How do I keep up with this? Who are you? Wait, you can love this person, but your title is that. Okay, like, so what? If I get confused, sorry. Mm-hmm. And if I get it wrong, let me know. And I'm not here to sit here and tell you you're wrong for telling me that. Right. You know, I don't care. Yeah, exactly.
3: There's a million ways to live a life. And there's really no wrong one unless your life is wrapped up in misery and right. violence and degradation whether yeah. you're the victim or the perpetrator you know yep. what i mean it's yeah. like that's kind of in my opinion the only wrong way to be yeah. and i otherwise i really don't care i think the world is so weird and big and yeah. has so much space and room for so much and right. it's so weird that we limit ourselves every moment of every day yeah and again, I, I think it comes from a real human thing of trying to understand each other in the context of one another and where you fit with me and where I fit with you and what role I could play in your life. And that's very normal. You know, it's not right. something to be ashamed of. But I think it's cool that we're kind of trying to like, ooh, I'm going to shake that off. But what does it matter if if my soul cares about your soul your essence your personality the person you are inside who cares about the rapper yeah. I, I don't know why i care about the rapper yeah you know so i mean i think it's nice to be thinking about a little outside of that yeah the literal box that our bodies are right. for right. our our insides you right. know right um and if you like a body and no problem with that plenty of bodies to enjoy <laughs>
1: <laughs> speaking of enjoying bodies i i was really thinking during anderson's visit to these brothels I was flashing back to a friend of mine who used to be uh, an exotic dancer.
3: Oh, yeah. Right,
1: she worked at a uh, at a local strip club and during the day mostly. Um she was like nighttimes or bachelor parties and it's awful and it's chaos and but she said during the day what she would get was rich guys would come in. They'd drop a few hundred bucks on a VIP room. They'd go in there and she'd, you know, she'd start dancing or whatever and they're like, "Nah, let's I I just gonna I'm just gonna Talk about the day I had or my home life or whatever. And she's like, I'm doing more therapy here than I am stripping.
3: How many times though have we seen that with the with the courtesan conversation or the concubines or stuff? Yeah. Where they're like, half the time, I'm not even trying to sleep with you. I just need a sympathetic woman to listen to me. Right. And like, for whatever reason, if they're not finding it in your wife or whatever, and who knows, you might be a piece of shit to your wife, and that's why she don't listen to you. I don't know. She might suck. I have no idea. (laughs) But they found this other woman. Who, for whatever reason, they could put that stuff on. And maybe because she's getting paid, she doesn't have to care. So she's like, yeah. all right, great. I can listen to that. You can dump all over me and I can leave that in the VIP room and head my ass on to my yeah. life. And I'm not weighed down by your stuff the way a wife or someone who has to, like, live with your stuff yeah. every day would be. Yeah, I could see that being very therapeutic. And maybe there's, a, I know a lot, you know, and again, making wide assumptions. But I know there's sort of an issue with men in our country going to the therapy. Um, so maybe that's what they're finding an outlet in that way.
1: They should just there should really be some kind of crossover industry. <laughs>
3: Where are right? the stripper therapists. therapists? The sexy therapist instead of yeah. sex therapists.
1: Sex therapists. Yeah, sexy therapist. <laughs> so it's sex workers.
3: Every time you have a uh, breakthrough, have, I take a close look. Who list.
1: have their degree. Look, I know quite a few sex workers <laughs> who have their degree in psychology. Hey, why not? And
3: what a study of human psychology. And real. if we
1: would legalize sex work in this mm-hmm. country. They could probably put both those skills to work and really make some serious money if we if With we therapy. added <laughs> you add sex work into any industry in this country and it will skyrocket.
3: I don't know about food service. No, but maybe. food service
1: too. Like they got buffets at strip clubs. They should. Sure you
3: know what? So and weird. actually, I think they even had some drive-through.
1: They had a drive-through um, strip club during the pandemic. During in, the pandemic, uh, I want to say okay. uh, Seattle or. Portland, yeah. or somewhere up in the Northwest. I remember
3: hearing about yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I guess it was a drive-through strip, not a drive-through. I was like, they're serving fries. <laughs> they're in sound. I'm over here giving them a different. fries job.
1: with that shake. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's right
3: there. Time. It's all yeah. working out.
1: Yeah. The other thing I, I wanted to point out, too, back in his trip, it's very briefly mentioned that he stopped to see Alexandre Dumas uh, the day before he went to the brothel for his 24-hour visit to Paris. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it wasn't the same thing where he was like, oh, Alexander will try to get me late again. Mm. And I'll come real close, you know, and that's mm. what he was looking for. So I wonder if that was the purpose of that visit.
3: Well, we know he couldn't ask Victor because Napoleon III was celebrating the Second French right. Empire, which meant Victor was lo- Victor off to Guernsey. Off. That's
1: right. <laughs> that's right. Um, well, Hans Christian Andersen, he did pass away in 1875. Uh, it seems to be of liver cancer. Oh, And I thought this was really sweet. Shortly before his death, he consulted a composer about the music for his funeral, and he said quote, "Most of the people who walk after me will be children, so make the beat keep time with little steps. Oh, oh so sweet. I mean, he just like I don't know, he was a basically a big kid his mm-hmm. whole life, and he knew kids he he was we we didn't get too much into his literature in this story because obviously we're looking at his romances, but he was." always talking about he's like you don't understand me but do you know who does kids that read my books Mm -hmm. and that's i think that's really why he just kind of wanted to be in that place of just childishness
3: yeah Um, i mean and why not i don't know i feel like again i feel like margaret wise brown had a little bit of that as well yeah like i just i don't understand why you don't want to look at the world with this wonder and excitement right interest and innocence instead of cynicism and you know, fear. Yeah. Like adults seem to have a lot. Um, yeah. You know, I there's something beautiful about that. I was just reading a poem earlier today that was like, why not? Everyone always says live each day as if it's your last. But why not live it each day as as if it's your first mm. and just being astonished by everything you right. see and right. like bowled over with enthusiasm about so many normal things and right. nothing is mundane. You know, and I was like, that's a really cool question. Why not live <laughs> in first yeah. and just like rubbing your eyes in wonderment?
1: Maybe like your 65th day. Because like we just met my newborn niece who's like <laughs> right, five she... days old and she don't care. She do about, be she's not wondered by anything. She's just <laughs> she like, what sleeping. the hell am I doing here?
3: Yeah, we should live each day as if we're about three months old. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, perfect. <laughs> and we're
3: like, wow, tripping balls. Yeah, and oh all my God,
1: I have two hands.
3: What? Whoa. <laughs> I love
1: What's it. What's a
3: foot? Oh that's my beautiful. God. I know I like that, that is that is something cool about that that energy.
1: Yeah, Hans had it. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what a what a guy. There's, I, I'm so fascinated by that. I mean, talk about just someone. If I did have my psychology degree <laughs> and I was doing sex work on the side to pay my bills, I would be really fascinated to analyze Hans Christian Andersen. Yeah, you know.
3: And to uh, well, I guess last time we mentioned that maybe he would be diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum today. And Randy, again, uh, shared a link with us saying that there's a lot of scholars who believe that now. It's very hard to diagnose that sort of thing, you know, later when they're not here to talk to obviously. But a lot of people are thinking that now. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's definitely been said. He's just a fascinating character to me. I mean, like, I always love when people's crazy lives lead to them writing these timeless books and novels and stories and stuff. That's always so interesting to dig into. But then there's so much more with this guy.
3: Well, and it's nice to remember that there's people, you know, legendary people who you feel like, oh, it's cool that they, you know, sort of marched to the beat of their own drum and they did their own thing. And but, you know, it's really cool to like dive into his private world like this and realize that that's really hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> That's hard to do no matter who you are. When it is that you know in in history that you're doing yeah. it, it's very hard to be out of step. Yeah, with and everybody around you, as much as we act like we value that, right? It it, it really is hard to watch. And you know, I think people are like, "Oh, why aren't you? Ugh, do do the normal thing?" You know. So it's nice to see how uh, you know how it really messed with his head a lot to be like, "I don't know why I'm different, but I just am." Yeah, and that's what makes him special, yeah. literally. That's why we care about him. That's why he was able to write what he could write.
1: Yeah. I, I to that point like seeing these legends and their lives were so not mundane but just like they they were just they were small people in a giant world. Mm-hmm. You know, we see them as these like marker points on the historical timeline, right? Yeah. And that makes someone so epic, so much bigger than than life. And when you like go to their day-to-day life, they were just trying to get through it like the rest of us and mm-hmm. confused and worried. And some of them were trying to get laid. Some of them were trying desperately to not get laid. Right. Um, I mean, yeah, and, making uh,
3: decisions based on emotions, right. based on nothing. I mean, yeah.
1: And being worried and, and and uh, you know, war and stuff around them having such an impact on their lives. They're just like anybody else. And I think that uh, that does a couple of things. It takes the idea of celebrity and legendary people off the pedestal a little bit. And it also, I think, teaches us that you know, despite our struggles, that kind of impact on the world is not out of reach mm-hmm. for us as normal as people.
3: Yeah. So if you're weird and feeling weird about it, yeah, stay weird.
1: Yeah, and let us know about your weirdness. We'd love to hear yeah, from you. Right. We love
3: weirdos around here.
1: And uh, and how you related to this story and what you thought of Hans and you know, tell us how offended you are as a Dutch or Danish person for being confused between the two. I will
3: never not be mad that we did that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Amazing.
1: But I, again, thank you so much to Arvid for suggesting this story. Yes. To everyone who's reached out about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm so glad that we got to spend a few episodes with this guy and I hope you are too. Please yeah. let us know your thoughts.
3: Absolutely. Of course,
1: send us an email at, uh, to radicromance at gmail.com.
3: Right. or we're on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Diana Boom.
1: And I'm at oh Great. It's Eli.
3: And the show is at romance.
1: Thank you again for tuning in for these three episodes, spending your time with us. Yeah. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it, and we will catch you at the next one.
3: Love you. Bye. Bye-bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance.